Welcome to UX, the global podcast at the intersection of research, design, and development. Sit back and listen as your hosts explore the ever-evolving world of user experience. And now, Chris Covell and Mustafa Ahmed. Welcome to the UX podcast. Uh, Mustafa, it took us a little bit of time to uh, get situated here. We had some technical difficulties, but we're now online. Yes, sir. Up and running. It's been a while, actually, since we've been talking about this. Yeah, we've hopped on these kind of calls every three, four months just to kind of catch up. And so and then we might as well just record it and put it out there for, for the world to see. Maybe now is a good time for us to uh, introduce one another. So I'm Chris. I'm a UX research manager at EY. I met Mustafa what, maybe now four or five years ago, something like that, in Dubai when we were working together at First Abu Dhabi Bank. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm Mustafa. I've uh, been born and raised here in Dubai. Uh, met, like, like Chris mentioned, we met back at FAB where I was a junior UX researcher, you know, a young Padawan to, the, to this world of research, um, and now currently the acting research lead for RackBank. Yeah, right. And I think when we met, right, you also had lots of interest in development, uh, software development, and then also software and product design, right? Yeah, had a, had a bachelor's in uh, computer science. So just kind of, you know, I thought my, my career or my, my, you know, for the rest of the days, I was going to be doing technology and product development and so on and so mm. forth. Uh, but somehow kind of just fell in love with this world of, uh, you know, user experience and design. And I guess here I am now. <laughs> yeah, it's funny for me with my background, I never thought uh, I was going to end up in technology. Um, but I, here I am now too, ten, almost 10 years later. So it's funny how things uh, turn out. I was never big, big into technology as a, as a kid, but I, I did get more and more as I was in school uh, interested in, in answering questions via research. Uh, and I learned really quickly right after school how important and how much connection there is with that kind of approach to actually technology. So hopefully that might be something that we can talk talk more about in the coming, uh, coming episodes. But I, I know that this is the first episode. We didn't really have anything planned out or any topics to to discuss kind of by design. We wanted to just keep yeah. we wanted to keep this one a little bit open and just kind of informal and, and see how things went. But I thought that it might be interesting to kind of kick things off because you get this question a lot, especially for people who are not in the industry, like kind of what UX is. So maybe we want to start by trying to talk about what we think it is. To me, at least, UX is thinking about the customer, uh, the person who's using the app or service. It's, it's, it's a journey, right? I mean, what, what we do at the end of the day are architects of that journey and how we take that person to complete a task or achieve a goal through whether it is, you know, you walk into a physical space or you go up on a digital platform. That's kind of what I think UX is all about, right? Paving that road for that user and how do you do it in the best possible way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're getting at something that I, it's partly why I sometimes call it the universal lens because it really can apply to so many different things, right? It's so general. Anytime an individual is going through a specific kind of journey, 
doing, trying to accomplish, like you said, a task, then this framework, this kind of field, I guess, of UX can kind of apply, or at least the principles can can apply. I th- I think the whole UX thing is just a combination of going from diverging to converging and back and forth until you get to a point where you're happy with the outcome. Going broad, but then going coming back narrow, and then going broad again, and then going back narrow. I mean, like the the just following that double diamond method, which I'm sure. Mm-hmm. People who are in the industry would know exactly what we're talking about in terms of double diamond, but uh, outside of the industry, it's more of a method or a framework to follow that will ultimately, I think, and it goes back to what I was saying in, in the very coarse grain way of looking at things, which is finding problems and then developing solutions. I think looking at it from trying to locate problems, come up with solutions, that are usually technical, you know, uh, in nature, but then ultimately also serve a uh, a business purpose or a business goal. I mean, I think now is probably good, as good a time as ever to think about the Venn diagram where you have fe- the desirability, feasibility, and viability. But I think that that's a, another good way of kind of coming into this space of what UX is, where harmonizing or balancing something that people will actually use and something that's actually valuable to an indiv- to 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 a, an individual person that will help their life in some way but that can also be computed or thought about in business terms and then also that's technologically viable you can't just you know come up with like, oh yeah flying cars but like the technology is not is not there right so it has to be able to actually be made so i think Balancing those three uh, constraints uh, is kind of something that we do. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, a lot of the times, it, like you said, I mean, it's a balancing act. It's it's very easy to get carried away and become and go to the extreme ends on any of those, right? Constantly thinking about making tons of money, but then missing out on a great experience or having crappy tech supporting it or constantly thinking of the best tech that you could incorporate, but you miss out, miss the mark on making money at the end of the year and again, have a lackluster experience or just going full-blown thinking about the experience and then you just make a loss at the end of the year and again, have crappy tech. Yeah, I think focusing on what happens a lot in in technology development in, in general or even in R&D is, is the one that you mentioned in terms of the focusing on the technology but not thinking mm-hmm. about the end user of the person who, who's actually using it, and I think that actually happens more so than than some of the some some of the other uh, scenarios that you mentioned. Whereas, and I think this is maybe what where we would we kind of call ourselves des- designers, uh, and maybe where we we differentiate ourselves from, I guess, scientists or engineers, which are very much focused on innovating the technology and just trying to see where they can take the technology. And not always, almost thinking about the market that it's that's that it's going to serve, right? It's it's more about the technology and what can you do, and what's possible than actually thinking about okay, so like how could we actually market this thing? How could it actually spread in an environment that's that's comprised of people not like me, the engineer, right? You're only as good as a designer, or, or as good as a technologist, or as good as a business person is if you can understand what's happening in those three different worlds that's one of the that's one of the things that the uh that that initially drew me to ux and and design thinking 
which was how cross-disciplinary or cross-functional it was, how it comprises so many different types of people with different kinds of focus. Mm -hmm. You know, you have business people, obviously, you have engineers and developers, you have people who are researchers, you know, things that we, we focus on, all coming together and into this perfect storm of different inputs that ultimately lead to something that's that's great and that can you know increase an, increase an individual or a population's experience so chris let, let, let me ask you this question then then do you think the way forward is for organizations to get these three kind of people in a room and work together or is the way forward for an individual regardless of which one of these three circles you come from to lean in more into the other circles yeah I mean, I, I read an article recently uh, on a, I'm on a research Slack channel and somebody, some, a researcher published a article, I think it was on Medium, I, I forget it, the actual platform, but they talked about someone who focuses building out their career in a T-shaped manner. And I, I think that I agree with that because it, it, this gets into the question around generalist or specialist. I think the T-shaped is a good metaphor where it's like you need to at least know a little bit about because because this this industry is is multidisciplinary as we were just saying right so it includes engineering and development business research design you know content a bunch of other things and I think to be you know successful or to be a, you know to be a professional in this industry I think you need to know a little bit about all the, all those things. At least to some degree, you need to have the, the language down. You need to know what they're up to. You need to know their specialty. But I don't think that you can specialize in all of them because each of them kind of require their own specialization and, and their own uh, ways of working and their own methods and, mm -hmm. and principles. But I think you need to specialize the way I look at it. And I think the way that to, to mature the field a little bit is to specialize in one. So, for example, I think you and I would maybe say we would specialize in research and kind of go down deep with research and know all those yeah. tools and techniques and, and, and technologies that support the function of research, but be able to talk to the other functions, for example, design or business or development. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's funny you bring up the whole T-shirt thing, uh, oh, the T-shaped uh, uh, approach or way of working. Because um, the way I've kind of always looked at it is that as a, as a, as a creative, as a UXer, mm -hmm. your, your T-shape is that, you know, in our case, it would be obviously the depth being designed, uh, being researched. But then the, the horizontals being other facets or other aspects of design, you know, be it whether you're a UXer or, or a visual designer or a content uh, experience individual, you know, that's those are the other horizontals. And then if you want to take a step back and kind of see, see from a bird's eye view, there's a more there's a larger T shape at works. And that is where you're more deeper as a designer. And then your other horizontals being business and technology. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's a bit of a T-shape inception, if you will. I think when you start looking at the different departments or the different disciplines that mm -hmm. come to, that merge together within this, within, I guess, UX uh, or des uh, design, you know, it can get overwhelming. You know, I, I do mentorships with young designers, young researchers uh, at, a, at a boot camp in, in Minnesota. And, you know, I, I try to talk to them about how it, it's like a double-edged sword. 
because it's mm-hmm. it, there's a lot to learn in in this industry. Because if you want to get interested in business, like if you want to get an MBA, I think that actually might be might be useful for a UX researcher. Um, but you may you may disagree with that. I think that that's actually an interesting open question, like how to level up and and what advanced degrees that you would want to get if you're a designer versus if you're a developer, if you're versus you're a product owner. Yeah, I mean it's it's a double edged sword because there's so much to the, there's if you're a curious person. And you want to see how different disciplines interact with one another. There's plenty of meat on the bone here to keep on developing and keep on learning. For me, and maybe this is like a controversial take, but it's hard to be a generalist in our field because there's so much to know, right? So I feel like you have to specialize in something. You have to be like, I'm a person who, for example, like I'm really good at graphic, like graphic design, like web design. So like a pixel designer, but I still know a little bit about research. I can understand like a st- statistics to like a very basic degree. I understand, you know, a, a business uh, value proposition, but ultimately my, what my role is, is, um, you know, visual design. It's, it's a fascinating space, right? There's constant arguments or constant discussions that you see happening about as how do, how do I propel, how do I excel myself to the next level? And, you know, we, we've, we've heard arguments where people are like, oh, just go NNG and get certified. Others would say, go get an MBA and, you know, scratch your head thinking, okay, if I'm a designer, why do I need to know more about business? I think at the end of the day, all knowledge is good knowledge. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot you're going to learn depending on the industry you work for, right? Like there's going to be information and and bits that you pick up purely based on the industry you're in, right? Like banking, for instance. Um, I don't think either of us ever thought we'd find ourselves in a bank <laughs> being the designers and researchers that we are. I, I, a lot of the industries that I've worked for, I, I never thought that I would be in, in, in that industry, for example, like insurance. But it, it goes to, but it goes to how, like I was saying before, the kind of the universal nature of what we do, you really can take someone with our skill sets, I think, and put them in any kind of business situation. And then the principles apply. Yeah, no, no, hundred percent. I mean, uh, our our skill set is such that it's it's very industry agnostic. But at the same time, it's good to have that industry knowledge because it just takes you one step further, right? You're able to connect the dots a lot better. There's a lot to it, and I, I think it's uh, oftentimes I've seen designers struggle and fail when they just go super deep into design and not consider the business side of things at all. Picking up the business side of things, or at least the basics to it, I, in, in my humble opinion, is, is a lot easier to do. And it's, it's really easily done when you just stick your head out, out of the ground and take a look around. Because how much I've realized in my time working in, uh, in different industries, but doing you know, design research, how much it impacts, how much we interact with the business. And without the business, without stakeholders without product owners, what we're up to is is pretty kind of intangible. I mean, we could certainly be off in our own little world and kind of come up with innovations and kind of do, you know, like blue sky type type stuff. Ultimately, to make an impact on our users, we're going to have to in- involve the business to some degree. I mean, there might be some exceptions somewhere. Uh, but from my experience, that's the, the case. It's, you're, you're always trying to, in a sense, sell or evangelize what you're up to with, with business people. So just by the nature of, of the work, you learn a lot about business, business language, business lingo, business 
thinking, uh, how they define success, how they measure. And I wonder if it's even necessarily necessary for you to let level up outside of your day-to-day interaction with the business and you're just kind of on the job training, if it would even make it, you know, be useful for a designer to say to go to go, you know, we keep on bringing up MBA, but I think that that's actually an open question to the field right now. And there may, there may not be good, good answers, or there may not be um, right or wrong answers right now. But for me, I still, I do think that it probably would be useful for designers to get a, get training in business even if they've had 10 years, 15 years working with business people, working in organizations. Yeah, no, I, I mean, uh, so, so my, my personal stance on the whole MBA thing is, is leaning towards the fact that you don't need one. And I guess where my stance comes from is that, you know, as you know, I spent four years working in the startup space. It trains you to have an entrepreneurial hustle, hustler mindset, and that forces you to go out and get answers that most that you know oftentimes you'd have you'd seek out business people to have those answers. So while I was playing the role of more of a creative slash technologist in that startup space, it was it was critical for me to really understand how business works, how you make money, how how you deal with those kind of operational issues and all those different things that when you all find when I finally walked away from all of that and stepped away and jumped back into the corporate world, it made me realize that, hey, you know what? I've done most of these things that they're teaching in MBAs these days. Right? And well, yeah, that's the thing. It's like when you're in a startup, you're all wearing the, you know, different hats all the time. So it kind of it, yeah, you, you have to see every aspect of of the process. Right. But yeah, I mean mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, when you really stop and, and think about UX and the, the kinds of work and the kinds of deliverables that we come up with, they ultimately satisfy business goals. I mean, I think without the without the business, there really would be no user experience. You know? Yeah, so I, I've got I've got a few mixed feelings on that. Um, simply because oftentimes you you see designers run off uh, and try to you know achieve a blue sky approach. And then we're often told to dial it back because whatever we come up with um, and purely depending on the maturity of the organization may get implemented in the next year or two, right? So it's not today's focus or may never get implemented at all because, well, it's going to take a massive investment and fortune to work out those infrastructure issues and work out uh, you know, a new business model to accommodate this new blue sky journey that we've probably worked on. That's that's kind of where I often see blue sky being both, you know, I think like you mentioned earlier, double-edged sword, right? That it's good for setting out the vision and setting out the direction of where we should be based on what customers want. But at the same time, if not managed properly or if not managed from the lens of a technologist and a business person, you'd often end up running off in a different tangent and producing something that'll never see the light of day. Yeah, I mean, it gets back to the division between business and design. Having people in business know about design and know what we're up to, how we operate, what how we think, and then also having designers understand what businesses want or what business people want and business people need mm-hmm. and the, how they define su- success. And if, if we can come together and converge, you know, I, 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 f- I find that that's part of some, some of the major issues in the field right now is there can be this division between the business and what we do. And they don't understand us. We don't understand them. Um, but we have to share a space. And 
there are UX teams being built and, and growing all around this country, all around the world, all different types of industries. I think you know it becomes maybe a little easier to make this divide um, when businesses go out to design firms, let's say, kind of separate from the organization and kind of work with them back and forth as vendors. Um, that might actually be almost an easier way of working uh, because the, the business kind of does, to some degree, set the goals and set the um, the objectives. But when you have d- design and business working side by side, you have to kind of have this, you know, both have to kind of influence one another. Uh, it's actually something that I'm I'm working on right now with a, with an internal project. Whereas we as designers, we have a group of researchers, um, project managers, designers, uh, data scientists assigned to a space. But, you know, and we have our own intuitions and we have our own things that we would want to focus on. But at the end of the day, when we're looking at the business and we're looking to try to enact change, uh, which is really, I think, the end goal to try to, try to, make, to, yeah. try to take a current state and bring it into a future state and make that future state better you know, better, make that experience better by, by bringing a future state into being that, that current state is occupied by product owners and business people. And we need to be able to work with them and we need to be able to influence them, which, and, and, and to go back to my point about business people hiring, you know, designers to come in and do a specific task and then have them, you know, and, and the engagement it's a different vibe. It's, it's, it's a different relationship versus kind of having designers in the business to work alongside the business stakeholders and the product people. So yeah, I think it's not something that's fully fleshed out. And it's something that I, I, I would hope that we continue to talk about and try to, um, you know, think, think more about, because I think it's really important. And I think that there are times when it, be, it, it can become stressful and frustrating on both sides, the, the business side and, and the design side uh, of how we work together and how we um, achieve results. I, th- I think what I often see as, as the root of many problems in this space is ownership. Who, who's owning that roadmap? Is the is the is that roadmap going to be driven by what's best for the customer? Or is that roadmap going to be driven by what's best for the business? And sometimes it might be one or the other. And then you know if it's if it's what's best for the customer, then it has to go through a round of validation to see if we're going to make money on this or not. What would you say to somebody who said, "Well, what's best for the customer is what's best for the business"? Uh, you know, having been on the product side of things, um, I, I can I can see now why I wouldn't agree to that entirely there there are often arguments to be made that yeah in most cases what's best for customers what's best for business but also what's best for the customer is free stuff and that's not good for business right so so that that that's kind of i mean it's it's not the best example but it's it's a very um it was an example that someone wants to used to explain this concept to me uh, a long time ago. Oftentimes, I think you and I have both seen this, right? Where product roadmaps are not yet defined until you get to Q2, which is nuts because you imagine that roadmap roadmap being finalized at the end of Q4 of last year. But uh, that's not always the case. And there's, there's more than just one reason to it. And as you start getting into the weeds of things, you start to see how overly complicated this is. And oftentimes, in my experience, at least, I've seen it kind of boils down to ownership. And who actually owns this roadmap and who's meant to drive yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, what do you think? It's actually, 
very apropos of, of some of the work that we're co- currently doing because the space that we're in as a UX team is occupied, like I was saying, by not just one business unit, but by multiple because it's a it's a big picture kind of space, right? It's not just, I think it, that's another way of maybe differentiating between business and, and UX teams, whereas the experience treads over multiple products and services. Whereas when you look at the business, they're more focused on bucketed specific products. But you can't, if you're looking to enhance an, uh, an entire experience, an entire experience might include four products uh, and then a service and then also real estate real estate. So those individual business units can probably have their roadmap, but I think maybe UX, where we can deliver value is to take a step back, look at the big picture, look at the current state, understand the blueprint of an individual's journey through these different types of products and services, and then be, be more tactical to locate certain problems and then bringing businesses together, business units together to try to solve those uh, problems, either through changes with the current state, through uh, buying new technology, replacing technology, building technology, uh, you know, new, 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 new kinds of technology, bringing in development. So, you know, there are, uh, you know, many ways to skin a cat, it seems like, but having one ownership of a product roadmap, I think might I think that that might not be the best way forward, almost because we have different we 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 focus on uh, on different parts of of the of the business and different part different touch points. I think business people focus on specific kinds of touch points within a given technology or a given product, whereas UX might try to look a little bit broader. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Uh, we do often look at the bigger picture, right, through uh, service design blueprints or ecosystem maps. Um, and it's it's it often kind of gets to the point where a lot of the issues or underlying problems that we identify when doing those kind of exercises often translate to either things that are only going to improve the customer's experience but may not contribute to overall revenue growth or decreasing the operational costs of the business yeah. and i think that often leads uh, to to the common saying right that research and design teams are just giant cost centers yeah I think that's another thing that maybe we want to continue talking about in other other episodes, maybe even devoting full episodes to it, is the business value of of design. And there's been a lot of talk in the industry about this. And I think measure I think attributing measurements and metrics to it are it becomes difficult for for many reasons. But I think a, a general principle or general concept that I think is hard to argue with is that if you focus on your user and to increase, to, to, to locate negative experiences, let's say they're customers, it doesn't have to be. We can take this uh, philosophy, I guess, and apply it to internal employees as well and, and look at cer- certain things like product, productivity and, and satisfaction at work. But let's, let's kind of, for the sake of argument, look at your customers and let's say you have an individual uh, product that you're, um, that's out in the marketplace it, looking at that journey, looking at how they understand, how they interact with that product and what they're getting out of it, understanding that experience, finding, especially finding negative areas of that experience, friction points, pain points, areas of confusion, areas where there's a breakdown in understanding and seeking to remedy those through technology, 
or through just a kind of redesign or simplification of, uh, of, of the design. I think that is just good in it of itself based on the principles and functionings of a market capitalist economy, right? Where if you have a product that's causing an individual certain pain points and a new product comes in that solves those pain points at a similar cost, I think just almost naturally people will gravitate towards the, the product that provides a better, better experience. So to prevent that from happening, to, pre to prevent your competition from coming in and stealing, in a sense, your, your customers, constant feedback, constant examination of your, your product and how it's functioning and, and how you can develop it, how you can grow it, how you can expand the features into other, other, other avenues and, and areas just by virtue of the uh, of what businesses are, are ultimately trying to do in a market economy, which is provide value to the individual, I think the principles and the functions of a UX, of UX people looking at customers, being empirical, using data, finding issues, finding opportunities, and seeking to innovate and seeking to change for the better. Yes, it's great that we increase you know, individuals' experience. I think that's good for the world, but it's also good for the bottom line because people vote with their, you know, with their dollars and cents. So if they like what you're doing, if they have good experiences with you, they'll come back and they'll spend more money. If they don't, the, the next product is, is, you know, is not too far away. So oftentimes, you know, we, we've seen it now where I don't know how I'm, I'm guessing it is far more advanced in the West where, where you are. Uh, but out here in the Middle East, we've seen it now where, where companies have started to take UX a lot more seriously, right? Yeah. To the extent where it's not just outsourcing work to vendors and other agencies, but building in-house capabilities for research and design. And so that, that often means that, you know, we've got our foot in the door, but now how do we make use of this investment and this opportunity we've been given as a research and design team to, to create value and overcome a lot of those challenges, you know, that uh, we often see because it's, it's not a red carpet thing, right? It's like, okay, we've got you in. Now make something happen. And I've heard it. I, I've heard it when I've described it to some of my um, some some of the friends that I've had are a little bit older who haven't really heard of design or UX. They've kind of who have been in business for a while. They've described it as like the icing on the cake. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't know if I would totally agree with agree with that, but I can. I can. You know, appreciate that take. Uh, but yeah, I think that you bring up an interesting point because, you know, like, let's just say uh, in a business, for example, only would bring in design via vendors, right? So there would only, there would be a demand, there would be something that they would want the designers to do, they would bring them in, they would get their result, and then, and then they would move on. And now when you have this full-time designers in your organization, you don't want them sitting on their hands, you want them to constantly be doing things and improving things. But you know how how do you how do you manage that workflow? How do you manage those tasks? I I'm not I'm not sure because I've been on design teams in the past where what our objectives are are not entirely clear. Yeah, yeah, no, no I, I I see that too as well. And you know, I think I think it also goes back to how P, how business often views research and design teams, right? I think I think there's been a very traditional way of business viewing technology. Right, where technology serves a role of serving the business. 
and businesses got some um, ideas or things that they want to do and implement and create and technology is there to kind of support and, and make that happen. But I see design differently, right? Um, you know, with, I see design as sort of uh, the, the complementing partner that comes in, you know, to, to challenge the business ideas and challenge the, the, the strategy and the way forward because we're often thinking from the customer's point of view as opposed to just thinking about the bottom line. And so obviously the business, so like, let's just say for, for, for an uh, example, you have a product owner who's attempting to try to bring a product to market. Yeah. They will think about the customer, right? It's not like we're the only people in the world who can empathize and think about customers. They're certainly thinking about them, but how can, how can design come in then and enhance and increase the, the, the functioning of that team? independent of, of what businesses are already doing. Yeah. No, I, I think, um, you know, that's, that's a great question. The, the way I'd go about answering that one is that, you know, if you're a product owner and you're thinking about these kind of functionalities that you want to put in, you know, before you even get the approval to go ahead and even start thinking about it, you got to put forward some projection, something, something forward, some uh, forecasting or something to do with finance forward that that gives gives the other big dogs in the room the confidence that okay you know what go for it we'll give you some money make this happen so to do so you got to bring in someone who's a financial expert who can do those projections and then put those numbers forward and make things accurate and if you're going to go through all that effort and pay all that money for that guy to come in then why can't you do the same when it comes to coming up with what the customer want, wants why, why do you have product owners who go about assuming that this is what my customer wants without actually validating it first, right? Why can't you have that same level of accuracy? There? I think you're getting at a great point, which is getting at customer demand, customer needs, uh, writing requirements, technical requirements based on user behavior, user psychology is a full-time role. It's a full-time gig. Uh, it, Exactly. Individual can come up with some, you know, V1 of what they think their customers might find useful or find valuable. But, only, I mean, it, it, it's very difficult to, to, to capture everything with uh, just a, a, with one person in a room thinking about it, right? Into, instead of actually going out, using research, looking at the customers, talking to them, observing, and then taking all that information, that data, and kind of synthesizing it and, and then analyzing it, right? That's not necess- that's not necessarily a, a, a you know walk in the park always right yeah yeah I mean e- even if you're not going and talking to customers right what if you're just playing a catch up game what if you're the kind of business that is 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 one of the late guys showing up to the market and all the other competitors have done it before years before and you're just trying to like copy even even in this pursuit to copying you gotta it's well, it's a buffet you have to also right? there, there's so many different you have options. To, you have to differentiate yourself somehow right. Exactly. And you, and you can't pick everything that you see, no. right? You can't go to one top dog player and mimic his entire thing. Why? Because there's probably some faults or some issues or something or the other going wrong. Well, it's also, it's also you, have to, you have to compete. And how do you ultimately win attention of users? You give them what it is they want and not, they don't always know how to articulate it, right? You kind of have mm-hmm. to look at the space. It takes a lot of inputs to get a sense of maybe some new market that you can kind of create with a new product or service. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, a product owner has already got way too much to focus on, right? His, his own product, his own 
new thing that he's he's about to build. I think getting having that expectation for them to go out there and study the competition as well at the same time. Sure, maybe from a financial point of view, they probably can because that's usually where their expertise lie. But from a design and experience point of view, it's 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 a little um, unrealistic to have that ask and then to have product owners go out there and do that, right? Uh, because you'd rather get someone who's been trained in that in that way of looking at the world to make those assessments. The same way you don't get uh, you know an IT guy to come and do the financial stuff. Well, there's also an execution aspect to it. Whereas you can have the best, most brilliant new idea that 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 serves a business function. And that separates you from the from the competition, and that consumers will that, that there's a demand there, and you've you've captured it. But then taking taking that and developing it, and making sure that the design, and making sure that that the development, the target, making sure that that you hit targets, and making sure that as you're moving through the process, you haven't you haven't uh, overlooked something. And that's where I think rapid iterative testing comes in, where you come up with prototypes. You know, and and then you test them, and you see, and you watch them evolve over time. You you put them with the real end users. You see what works, what doesn't work. You you categorize and collect what doesn't work. You get rid of it. You come up with new designs. You mm-hmm. try it again. You see if you move the needle. You know, even if you have that big beautiful idea, actually making sure that it that it that it becomes concrete is is as another process in it of itself. Yeah, and and you know every everybody's kind of focused on how can I be quick to market, right? Even even if it means I'm just putting an iteration out, how can I how can I quickly get another iteration out at the same time, or you know in the in the coming days as opposed to coming weeks? And um, I I, th- I think that that would lead to a whole different conversation, which we might want to maybe dedicate a separate part, uh, you know, episode for that, and that will be around uh, about you know design and research ops. Right? How do you get like we've we've all heard of you know if you've been in the software industry you've heard of probably heard of DevOps right? How do you get development to move at a rapid pace where you're able to work on things, develop them, uh, test them, and get them out the door ASAP? But how do you do the same for research and design? Right, something that is a little more in the creative space and not binary in the sense that does it work or does it not work? Right, the way you'd look at code. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, that we might want to leave that. Yeah, for I mean, that's probably a good one to to focus on for sure because I think that there is a lot there. Um, but mm-hmm. one, just right off the bat, maybe we can just quickly chat. I want to get your take. Is I know a lot of design teams, in particular, are kind of using development, product management, um, you know, you know, principles and and, and methods. For example, uh, agile or you know, sprinting this kind of thing. Do you see? development and their tools and techniques as being the industry standard when uh, now research and development team or research and design teams are getting bigger and getting more work uh, and having more um, more input? Yeah, I, I do actually, uh, to be honest. And, I, and I'll tell you why that is, right? Because uh, and I, I know that's my Because answer. you have a background in computer science, that's why. No, no, no. I, I wouldn't just say it just because of that. Uh, and I know that this, uh, you know, saying yes to that may raise a few eyebrows in the crowd. But uh, the way I look at it is, is you know, my, my, my framework of choice is design thinking, mm-hmm. right? You know, you go through your design thinking process, which if you think about it, isn't it it's iterative process, right? You're going back um, and you're, you're moving at quicker pace as opposed to it's just... It's cross-functional too. 
It's cross-functional, yeah. yeah. And, and you're not going down a waterfall method, right? Where it's as in you're not empathizing and then you never come back to empathizing with a customer. Um, it's always going back and forth. And when you think about agile way of development, it's also the same, right? It's, it's, it's not all about just constantly develop for three months and then test for a month and then go live. Um, you break things up into agile development sprints. And if, you know, we, we've actually been extremely inspired by that and, you know, whatever, the, everything that design thinking preaches and realized after really studying it that, hey, design thinking is just our version of agile. You mean designs? Yeah. So, so design thinking is, 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 is a UXer, right? Uh, you know, your research and design teams that have been built to produce, uh, you know, great user experiences in a timely, efficient manner, right? Where we're able to do our entire due diligence of going through the, you know, um, empathizing all the way up to prototyping and testing processes um, and getting things out the door. I think, I think it only makes sense because if you're going to be working with an agile development team, and let's be frank, this is what all the technology teams are now trying to fully move into, then it only makes sense that your research and design teams also kind of adopt a similar way of working or at least adopt a way of working that fits well with the agile development cycle. You know, we talked about harmonizing before, you know, business te technology and, I guess, and, and user. I think harmonizing, attempting to harmonize the ways development, research, and design work is another open question and another thing that I think we need as a field to come together with and develop new tools and new methods to support this 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 kind of growing these 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 growing arms of let's say the development process, which is research and design to include uh, to include those in the development process. There's been a lot of development process work that's already been done and, and groundwork and frameworks and foundation, but I think that it, it, it is kind of centered and tailored to engineering. And I think having researchers and mm -hmm. designers now kind of coming into the fold and understanding their value and understanding how they work and understanding what their function is, I think is, is important, but I think also changing, changing the methods a little bit to adapt to, for example, a research, uh, a researcher and how they operate and the kinds of work that they produce and the kinds of deliverables they're focused on, I think is, uh, is something that can be, I think, super useful to the field. It's, uh, it's, it's, so it's, it's funny, you know, it's, it's, we, we, dis we started off this podcast with it's three different worlds, right? Business technology and design. And I think in the last hour or so, we've kind of got to the point where we're talking about how all three of them are kind of spinning or, 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 you know, what's, what's the right analogy of bl being blended into this one common world that we all live in now, right. As designers, business folks, and technologists. So it's interesting. It's fun times. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I mean, I, I think I, I can see already from the time that I started to now, how much has changed and how much has developed and how, Many industries now are kind of buying in, you know, when the first things, one of the things I would see all the time when I was first looking for jobs like in UX was how much evangelization was needed, how much you needed to evangelize, to discuss with business people and just to discuss with anyone you're really interacting with what, what it is we're even doing. So, I mean, I think that, that not only do we need to talk to the business about 
and explain to them and show them and demonstrate them. And this is probably another podcast in and of itself too, is how do we actually demonstrate to business people what it is we do and the value that we have when they don't really understand exactly our methods and our techniques. I mean, do mm-hmm. you show it to them? Do you give them the, the like the, the lecture uh, and like the facts and the, um, the theory, let's say, or do you just go ahead and say, you know, trust us and we have a process and, you, you know, you'll see eventually as we're moving through a process, the end result. I, I'm not sure I, I have a, a good answer for solving that problem. Yeah, I, I think that that's going to I think if we start talking about that now, we're going to spend the next hour just talking about this art of storytelling that is another critical skill. You know, I, it was something that I learned and that I changed my mind when I was working, when we worked together at the bank, because I know there were, there were individuals, you know, we were working a little bit separate from the business, you know, we were in in the innovation lab, and we were attempting to try to one of our goals given to us by our manager, by, uh, you know, the the head of uh, innovation was to try to change the culture uh, across the the, um, firm, right, to try to spread Mm -hmm. design thinking and spread design you know, far and wide. There's a there's a lot of ways to do that. But it's first, firstly, it's not easy. Secondly, you know, one of the ways that I know a lot of the individuals in the lab wanted to focus on was, you know, it's a marketing problem, and you go yeah. and you explain, you give the theories and, and this kind of thing, and and you bring people into the lab and you sh- and you and you make it fun and you make it participatory. In my and, and I kind of saw the value in that. In the beginning, I was quite skeptical. And I saw the value in that after, you know, being there and seeing uh, just how much people can can engage. My real philosophy, though, when I was first brought in there, when we were thinking about, okay, how do you actually spread this way of working and, and how do you convince the business to continue to engage with designers? My first thought would be, well, you just demonstrate the quality and the value of your deliverables, Right. If you give them a research report that's going to make it easy for them to make a decision, they'll come back. If you give them an, uh, an asset, a design asset that solves a design problem for them that they can take and that they can run with and develop and then solve, a, solve an issue, instead of having to do all that labor themselves, they'll come back. They'll be a believer, right? It, you know, Solve their problems for them. Yeah. No, so I, I, I personally kind of look at it from a different lens. And I think where my thoughts come from is you know having run a business before where if you just produce the best possible app or website or you know whatever you're building just assuming that people are going to use it is not enough right you have to give them a reason to use it just because it exists or they know that you can produce this kind of level of quality uh, experience is not enough right it's uh, you have to sort of explain to them why they need to use it and oftentimes the easiest way to do so is to relate or empathize with them and, and you know, bubble up their own pain points and remind them, hey, doesn't it suck to do this? Hey, wait a minute, we got a solution for you. Here you go. Here's this website, right? And the same way, that's kind of what we were doing back in the lab, right? Like, doesn't it suck to make the wrong decisions? Well, here you go. This UX I research. think you're talking... Uh, about the difference between marketing and product design, right? No, 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 no not necessarily. I, I think, I think you know, you can have great product design, but you also need to have just, you know, I, again, I'm putting my business hat on. My this. philosophy here, and maybe, maybe this, maybe we do disagree, is if it's not if you build it, they will come. No, but if you build something good enough, 
it will it will spread in the population because of word of mouth. I do believe that. Maybe not. Maybe yeah. not every time. Maybe you know there are exceptions for sure. But prob- probabilistically, if you make something that's good enough, people will talk. I think. Yeah. No, I I get what you mean. But I mean, I, if if you look at today's uh, day and age, right, and and this and this uh, you know the social media kind of world where where things are where people are rolling the dice and hoping to go you know win the lotto by going viral. You only go viral if there's content to go viral. You wonder why things, for example, on TikTok, why do some videos get a million shares and some get zero? I would argue that there are good and bad reasons why. That it's the one that has a million views or the product that sells a million copies, it's doing something. It's delivering some sort of value to the end user. And it's not just random. No, I wouldn't say it's random. I would say that the product in those kind of, in some of those TikTok videos is the person speaking or person, you know, maybe it's a dance, maybe it's, you know, someone doing a, a comedy bit. That person is the product. All they've done is show the world what the product is. How did they do it? They made a TikTok video, right? So, so there is something about putting the product out there and, and showcasing it and make, giving people a reason to understand the value as opposed to just putting the product out there and hoping that people will find it and come to it. They, people have to be told and shown that they have a need. They may not, they may, yeah. they may not know that that need exists yet, 100%. right? Especially if something's very new. If you have this new way of, of doing, of working, let's say some new tool, some new SaaS tool, and you've done all your research and you found this like latent need, right? That people may not be able to articulate, but you've discovered and you've located and you've wanted and you've now delivered on it. How do you get that first step? Because they may look at it and not know exactly what they're, what they're looking at. There's an interesting, interesting research on diffusion of, of innovations where you have different groups of people and you'll have a small group of people. I think it's like the 10% of the population, maybe 5% of the population are these early adopters. And they'll just, because of their, either their age or just their, their personality, you know, their, their, their interests or psychographics, they'll just try, try new things. They'll go and they just want to be the first. These are the people then will that, that start spreading the word. And if these people, independent of whether you market to them well or, maybe, or or don't market to them well, or if they even know if they have a need or they don't have a need, they'll just try it. They'll just adopt it. And I think that these these are the people who will then you know sound sound the alarm. Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with you. I think I think there are times where sometimes you can purely let it go to word of mouth. And, you know, people will know what it is and then they'll start using it. Oftentimes, things do have to be kind of explained and told to people, right? You have to yeah. make people aware that, hey, there is a need, right? I mean, if you, if you think back to the iPhone, cliche example, but still extremely relevant even now. We were all good with our Blackberries back then. We got the job done, made the calls, did everything. It never occurred to anybody that, hey, maybe I want some more screen. Maybe I don't want these buttons. Maybe I want to browse the internet on my phone and not go to a computer, right? Which we were all happily using and still use to this day. No one was connecting those dots, right? Exactly. And and, and I think the idea of, of selling a product or marketing a product by connecting it back to or making people realize what their needs are, right? I I, th- I think that's still relevant even even to this day, and still relevant to a service like research and design for an in-house innovation team. 
you know, I, I it, and it's and it's funny, you know, while we're having this debate on this, because even in my new role, I've got folks that I'm working with, senior folks that I'm working with that have, you know, either come from the West, right, where they worked at, the, you know, some of the best companies out there like yourself, like you have, um, and some who've, who've kind of spent most of their career, careers here in the Middle East. And the guys from the West make this uh, are taking your side. And the guys who've who've been here in the Middle East are talking about we need to evangelize research and design. We need to make people know and understand the value. Being in the Middle East, you know, and being in Dubai, it's such a diverse place, you know, for you know a year and a half almost. Um, I really appreciated that, and I felt like I was able to grow as a professional and as a person, being exposed to the, the, the different kinds of uh, approaches and the different kinds of perspectives. Because I do know, especially in the Middle East, it's not like here in America, whereas here in America, it's very market driven. It's, it's very economic focused and it has been for, for a long time. I know the Middle East, it's, it, is, it is like that to some degree. And, and a lot of your models have been kind of taken from, from the West. Yeah. I mean, the Middle East is such a, such a melting pot of, you know, cultures and ideas and mentality. Um, I, I think if I, if I remember correctly, and obviously I'm not going to disclose too much because we're both bounded by NDAs, but one of the insights that we, that we got from one of our, the research projects we worked on was that the, the behaviors that we're looking at here in the Middle East, you know, it's, I won't say 50-50, if I remember correctly, it was about more of a 60-40 split between Western-like behavior and Eastern-like behavior, you know, the kind of behavior you'd see out in Japan, in Singapore, and those kind of markets. Um, obviously, this was in the context of payments, but nonetheless, I still believe that kind of applies to almost everything else that we have here, right, in the region. Um, it's a mix of mentality and behaviors. Uh, that it's really great, you know, or maybe that's uh, it's a, it could be a challenge too because you have to serve so many different kinds of, of, of people from all different types, all different walks of life, uh, and all different corners of the globe. You know, from a, even a market segmentation point of view, I don't know. I know that when we worked um, at the at the bank together, when we were working directly with. With the, with the head of marketing, you know, we did a lot of work around segmentation and thinking about personas and profiles. Is that something that you find to be more difficult in terms of making sure the products and services are satisfying your customer base? I mean, uh, the, the, the way we've kind of gone about it is that we've tried to build obviously what's the best experience for all, right? And then when, when we start looking into to these kind of personas, we realized very quickly that it's we're not going to be successful if we just take a banker's per persona, right? It had to be more, more specific to that product or service. Like what are the what are the five personas that come out when it come when we're talking about this kind of product versus that kind of product? And that was the only way we were able to really make it more hyper-personalized and hyper-focused and justify a lot of the, the, the design decisions that were made because it, we realized that the lines were really getting blurred when we looked at it from a more holistic lens just because of this kind of melting pot culture. If you're a firm or, or you know, an enterprise and let's just say you have 10 offerings, I think if you take all of your customer base and then you segment them that way and then try to apply that segmentation to all 10 of your products. I think that's the wrong way to do it. I think you, you probably want to go product by product and then look at the, look at the variance between the users of that specific product. Yeah. I'm going to make a note of this. I think, I think we got to be 
possibly have a, a whole separate episode on personas and archetypes because um, I know this is something we tackled back in the day on you know smart personas and then that kind of stuff. I think yeah, I, I I think we've already highlighted probably what four or five different four or five different, different topics, topics. Yeah. And, and maybe yeah maybe that could be something. I think for the first one, it was good to kind of have just a you know an open ended conversation, see where things go. Maybe it was a a, a little bit uh, erratic uh, at times, but maybe in uh, oh, we we're going broad, we're diverging. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, uh, now as we are setting up our socials, I think, you know, that's a good place for folks to kind of come find us, have a chat with us, discuss, maybe share some thoughts and ideas and topic suggestions on what they'd like to hear us talk about. Um, so, you know, I think as, as as we start to build out this podcast, I mean, episode one, finally, I think it's going to be it's going to be interesting to kind of see the kind of topics we get to go through in the, in the coming weeks and months. Great discussion. Great talking with you and uh, look forward to number two. That's a wrap for this episode of UX. If you want to stay up to date with Chris and Mustafa's latest episodes, be sure to subscribe to the show and leave them a review on your favorite podcast platform. It helps other listeners find the podcasts and join in on the conversation. And don't forget to check the line notes to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn for behind-the-scenes content, updates, access to comment boards, and sneak peeks of upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening to UX, and we'll see you next time for some more insights into the ever-evolving world of user experience.